recorded. Okay, all right. Okay, so welcome everyone. Uh, thanks, thanks for joining our, our seminar series for today. Today we are hosting Dr. Jennifer Regan. Uh, she's a professor of international studies at uh, Acadia University in the US. Uh, she studies nationalism, the state, militarism, and education. And she's the author of The Struggling State, Nationalism, Mass Militarization, and the Education of Eritrea, in, which was published in 2016. She has held fellowships from the Wolf uh, Humanities Center, the George Arthold Program, Fulbright, uh, Dispenser Foundation, National Academy of Education, and the Social Science Research Council. Along with Amanda Poole, uh, she's the author of The Hosting State and Its Restless Guests, Time-Making, Mobility and Containment Among Eritrean Refugees in Ethiopia, which is currently under review. Uh, today, she will be speaking to the uh, theme of the intimate state, teachers and fault lines between repression and revolution. So please join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Regan. Can I please ask everyone to turn off uh, their cameras and uh, microphone so that uh, uh, this can go very well and then we can turn back you know uh, microphone and uh, um, cameras when we want to ask the questions after the end of our presentation uh, so dr regan yeah. okay thank you very much for that nice night while i and i'd like to thank Wale for introduce for inviting me to come speak to the seminar um, and also for putting together the edited volume on ethnographies of the state in Africa, um, which led us to, to get to know each other and produce the paper for this particular volume. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Hopefully that worked out the way it was supposed to be. I'm always a little bit disconcerted when um, everything jumps around as soon as you share your screen, but hopefully everyone can see everything that they're supposed to be seeing and not my notes. Is that right? Is everyone? Yes, Excellent. Yes. Great. Sounds good. Um, I've been really happy to engage with this project, um, which I've been working on concurrently with the other project that while I just mentioned um, on Eritrean refugees in, in Ethiopia, um, in part because it's allowed me to revisit some older theoretical frameworks to help make sense of the state in Africa and elsewhere, which I think are still very relevant. Um, when I I began graduate school in the early 2000s, everyone was talking as if the nation state would immediately cease to exist um, everywhere in the world. Um, that's a bit of an exaggeration. It certainly hasn't done so, and now it seems clear that it isn't going anywhere soon. Um, but the nation state is changing and arguably has to adapt in order to coexist with a, an, an array of different emergent um, things that are happening around the world. And what I'm particularly interested in thinking about is how a nation state that that claims to be moving towards democratic development has to contend with rising authoritarianism, um, or in the case of Ethiopia, um, stable authoritarianism, populism, as well as new configurations of people's identities and economic formulations. So this particular paper is an ethnography of civic and ethical education teachers in Ethiopia during Ethiopia's 2016-17 state of emergency. I'm gonna begin with a brief anecdote need to figure out how to change my slides. Um, I'm going to begin with a brief anecdote from some of my fieldwork on civics teachers um, that I think raises some really interesting questions for our examination of the state. And then I'll move on from there to provide some ethnographic, autoethnographic, and theoretical perspectives to talk about why I think looking at schools and teachers in times of crisis are, are an important way to examine the intimate, interpersonal, um, and often violent realms of the state by looking at states of emergency, intimacy, and normalcy. And then I'll bit, provide a little bit of an overview of, of Ethiopia's civic and ethical education curriculum, um, and particularly argue that it, that it produced a desire for democracy in many Ethiopians, um, if not the actual practices of democracy. Um, and from there, I'll turn into some of my ethnographic work and interviews to explore some of the ways in which teachers existed on the fault, fault line and indeed constituted the fault line between repression and revolution. So just to, bring, to begin with the anecdote that um, occurred fairly early in the fieldwork that I was conducting in April 2017, um, I had been conducting observations and interviews with civic and ethical education teachers in five schools in Addis Ababa um, while the state of emergency at that time was still in effect. I observed a class taught by a dynamic secondary school teacher who I'll call Elsa, that's clearly not her name, um, 
she was teaching a class on the topic of the value of saving, um, which is one of the mandatory units in the secondary school civic and ethical education curriculum. She was extremely energetic. The students were very engaged. They were listening attentively, responding to her questions. She had a great rapport with her students. They, she laughed in class often. The students seemed ease in her at ease in her class. Um, and as we walked back to the staff room after I'd done this observation of her classes, she commented to me rather offhandedly that she was sorry that she was a bit behind in teaching the curriculum because she had been in jail for four months. So she then proceeded to explain to me that just after the state of emergency was declared, one of her students in class had asked her why the government was arresting protesters, given that, as they'd learned in their civics class, it was their right to protest. The teacher had told the student that the student needed to distinguish between violent protests, which were not allowed by the government, and nonviolent protests, which, which are allowed by the government. She said that shortly after that, two police officers came to the school and told her they wanted to ask her some questions. She was then subsequently arrested without trial and released four months later. She suspected later that some of her students had reported the classroom exchange and led to her arrest. So at first glance, this incident of Elsa's arrest might look like a clear cut example of state repression, but I'd suggest that it's a good deal more complicated than that. And that this incident can teach us a great deal about how civics teachers not only navigate the shifting fault line between state repression and revolutionary change, but actually come to constitute that fault line. Going deeper into the nuances of this particular event and the teaching of civics during this time of turbulence in Ethiopia allows us to look much more closely at how the state comes to be and be thought of as a particular kind of thing, a time in a time of particular political transition in particular. So what I'm particularly interested in doing in this paper is exploring how an intimate, embodied, everyday experience of what we might think of as the state, particularly through a repressive state encounter, intersects with efforts of the state to legitimate itself and results in the state's failure to legitimate itself. Teachers can help us better understand the nature of the state, particularly these kinds of states and transitions, because teachers both constitute these encounters with the state, but are also charged with producing the idea of the state, a distinction that Philip Abrams made in his writing in the late 80s. Um, teachers are also often subject the often the subjects of state discipline, which further complicates their issues. So I'll unravel some of these things as I work my way through the paper. Just trying to figure out how to turn the page. Um, all right, just to start us, that what I have up here is just a very abbreviated history of political uprisings in Ethiopia. Mainly, I, I didn't know how familiar the, audi the audience would be with Ethiopia's political history. This is not intended to be comprehensive. Um, it's really just intended to illustrate the number of different um, forms of political turbulence that Ethiopia has experienced over, over the years. Um, it's, a, it's a state that's often regarded as a stable place, but if you sort of look at the broader sweep of its history, Ethiopia keeps returning to these periods of what I think of as authoritarian centralism. And then there's waves of protest trying to push back against that. Um, and then it returns to this sort of authoritarian centralism. Um, and I think one of the reasons why you keep seeing these sort of rotations is that, that Ethiopia is constantly sort of projecting itself as a place that is trying to progress in one way or another, whether that's through communist reforms um, in the 70s or democratic reforms in the, in the, two, in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, but something keeps pulling it back to a more repressive state. So I think that's an important thing to think about with regard um, to Ethiopia as we, as we move forward um, in this presentation, thinking about this. So Elsa was arrested in a, in a very particular political moment during which a great deal was in flux. Beginning in 2014, the areas bordering Addis Ababa in the Oromo ethnic state had been embroiled in recurrent protests, initially due to anger over a plan for the central government to expand Addis Ababa into the Oromo state. Protests gathered momentum and support throughout 2015. Despite the fact that the government then canceled the controversial Addis Ababa master plan that was the focus of the protests, unrest continued, often targeting businesses, particularly foreign owned businesses throughout the state. At this tense and uncertain moment, I arrived in Addis Ababa for a year long fellowship with two small children and my husband, who happens to be an Eritrean, who had grown up in Addis Ababa, but had not been back to the city since his family was deported during the border war with Eritrea that began in 1998. 
At this time, we were receiving lots of vague U.S. State Department warnings that told us to exercise caution, avoid large gatherings, not travel outside of Addis Ababa by road, um, which would require crossing immediately into the Oromo State because Addis Ababa is, in fact, surrounded by the Oromo State. Addis Ababa at this time came to feel like an island under siege. Protests and unrest surrounded the city, and many people in Addis Ababa worried that they would pose a different a, a, a danger to the city, although they did, never really fully did. Ethiopians, as I noted on the earlier slide, have lived through many waves of political turbulence and state violence. Addis Ababa residents in their 40s and older will remember student movements that led to the transition from imperial rule under Haile Selassie to communist rule, and also the, 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 the red terror that follow as Mengistu solidified his power, killed and imprisoned, terrorized and tortured not only other communist factions, but civilians as well. Most Ethiopians had lived through the 1991 transition from the communist Derg regime under Megistu Haile Mariam to the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, which ruled um, until Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed took over um, in 2018. In 2005, widespread protest and government crackdown on post-election protests um, occurred after the opposition and the government disagreed about who had won a majority of seats. And from that point on, the EPRDF for the most part, succeeded in increasing their hold on power, backed away from democratic reforms um, until 2014 when the country began to erupt again. So that's when we sort of begin this moment of the state of emergency that I began writing about. During conversations with Ethiopian colleagues at Addis Ababa University during the state of emergency and just before it, as well as my middle class neighbors and friends during the fall of 2016, the desire for return to some version of normal, even if that normal was decidedly non-democratic and authoritarian, was palpable. Normal meant stable, predictable, a world in which one could go about one's ordinary duties, conduct business. At the same time, there was almost no support for the government. And there was a great deal of concern about corruption, youth unemployment, and increasingly and, and increasingly strong-armed tactics to squash protest and shut down even moderate opposite political opposition voices. In the middle of this volatile politics, there was an accept there, there was an expectation that things would and should always return to some kind of imagined normal. Um, so ongoing state repression and the sort of desire to return to normal, even if normal didn't mean a move towards democracy seemed to be intention, in, intention with each other. On October 2nd, 2016, tensions came to a head around the annual Oromo Arecha Festival, which is celebrated in the town of Bishoftu, 40 kilometers outside of Addis Ababa. The Arecha is the most important Oromo celebration. Um, and just to summarize what happened, um, by all accounts, the government took over the celebrations, which should have been both a religious and a political celebration for the Oromo people themselves. Um, this led to great frustration and eventually the crowd shouting out anti-government slogans, um, to which there was a display of force by the government. Some, some accounts suggest tear gas or rubber bullets. Some, some suggest live rounds. This then led to a panic, which led to a stampede, which led to large numbers of people being crushed to death. And estimates um, range between 55 people who were killed and 700 people who were killed in this incident. Back in Addis Ababa, where I was at the time, the story trickled to us in alarming bits and pieces. One rumor floated around that I think is particularly interesting that the government had used a military helicopter on site and had fired at people. We had a friend visiting us at that time, a person who, who like my husband, had, had lived through the Red Terror, which was an extremely violent period of infighting. Um, and when he heard about the use of a helicopter, he broke down um, and immediately began to feel unsafe, saying, I don't know where this is heading. Will we always be unsafe? What we later learned as we talked to this friend of ours was that um, this recalled for him a time when the technical school where he attended school had had a military train helicopter trained on the school in the face um, of, of a coup attempt at that time. So in some ways, I think it's we later learned that the helicopter was supposedly dropping leaflets that read Happy Eracha to the crowd, not firing on the crowd. Um, but nevertheless, even though the helicopter was supposedly dropping leaflets, um, its presence was a powerful material and symbolic signifier of state repression that viscerally evoked feelings and embodied memories of fear, violence, and uncertainty, which I think are very close to the surface to many Ethiopians. And I'll talk about that more in a little bit. Um, so there was another week of intensified protests after that, um, and eventually on October 8th, a six-month state of emergency that eventually led to Elsa's arrest was declared. 
Um, the state of emergency temporarily restored calm and normalcy, but also resulted in mass arrests, significant repression, the banning of terminology, symbols, TV stations, and publications associated with opposition groups. Um, mobile internet access to, and access to social media was blocked throughout most of the country and sometimes the internet as a whole. Outside of Addis Ababa, particularly in the Oromo state, the effects of increased state repression were felt strongly. But in Addis Ababa, we all quickly adapted to our lack of connectivity and almost immediately forgot the turbulence that had been so pervasive just a few months before. Fear and uncertainty followed by the ease with which the tension was forgotten and the pervasive desire for a return to normal can be encapsulated by a couple of theoretical terms that come from two different anthropologists. Um, one, the idea of the maddening state, which is the late anthropologist Begonia Arachaga's concept, and the other Michael Taussig's notion of the nervous system. Both concepts refer to a powerful desire for normalcy that erases but coexists with and can mask violence. The maddening state refers to the maddening condition as our desires for a paternalistic state, a state that is thought to care for its subjects, even in the face of evidence of egregious state violence, coexists with awareness of state violence and an awareness that is often squashed in the short-term memory once some semblance of normal returns. So the, the idea of the maddening state gets at this idea of the idea that we're constantly desiring, imagining, thinking, trying to return back to some sense of, of calm, some sense that the state is taking care of us, but we're also constantly plagued by these awarenesses that the state is violent and those things exist in a in, in, in a state that can literally drive you, drive you mad if you wrestle with it for, for too long. Um, the memories and experience of violence don't go away, but they're integrated into our individual nervous systems and into the collective social nervous system, as Taussig notes. Um, and Taussig's concept of the nervous system is is a is a bit different. It's it's a it's a way of getting at when you have a state that is pervasively violent. What does that do to the the individual nervous system by putting you on edge all the time, as well as the kind of collective nervous system that creates um, both a, a, a need to return to normalcy, but also a sort of sense that everyone's kind of constantly on edge, and that's, that's that's actually very close to the surface and can return at any point. So we might argue that both the maddening state and the nervous system are manifestations of the discrepancy between what Philip Abrams refers to as the state idea on one hand, the way we think of the state in a particular way, benevolent, paternalistic, everything's okay, normal, um, and what he calls the palpable nexus of praxis, which is actually our everyday encounters with the state, which might be violent, might be different, might be mundane or ordinary, but in the case of Ethiopia at this time, we're often for many people quite violent. Under conditions of state violence and authoritarianism, state ideas, particularly ideas that the state produces about itself, clash with state practice. In Ethiopia, authoritarian practice and state violence coexisted with claims that Ethiopia was democratic. And I'll get into this a little bit more when I talk about the civics curriculum, which really made people be able to think about Ethiopia as a democratic place, even when it was not behaving as a democratic place. So my question moving forward is what happens to the government sanctioned and promoted discourses about the state as a liberal constitutional democracy when these clashed with an increasingly intimate awareness of state violence and authoritarian practice? So I want to shift just slightly to talk a little bit more here about the productive effects of state violence. Violence is a challenge for thinking through subtleties of the state. It's very easy to just say that the state's use of violence to control and squash dissent are just repressive. Um, but I would argue that it's important to consider the more subtle effects of state violence. Violence always disciplines produces and shapes a particular state subject relationship. Um, Selwa Ismail's work on Syria coins the term pedagogical violence to talk about the ways in which extremes of violence in Syria, where she's writing, um, teach state subjects to live amidst violence, but also teach subjects to develop a particular subject relationship with the state um, in order to avoid violence, in order to cope with violence, in order to make sense of how to behave as state subjects in a way that's quite distinct from the way, say, democratic state subjects would think about. Um, in some ways, my, my own work on, on Eritrea that looks at the notion of the punishing state and the way people think about the state as a punishing entity and then in turn experience punishment again and again as a similar way of understanding the effects of state violence, state coercion, and the ways in which people come to think of themselves as subjects of a state that's capable of ongoing violence. So in the case of, of Elsa's uh, uh, arrest, um, she's in many ways 
um, subject to this kind of state violence, this kind of pedagogical violence. And I'll talk more in a few minutes about um, how it how it is that that affected the way she and other civics teacher thought about um, particular state violence. Um, but she's also being asked to perform two contradictory roles. She's been asking to she's being asked by teaching the civics curriculum to promote the idea of a democratic state, and then she's also being asked to quell dissent among her students in certain kinds of ways. Um, but she herself is then also a, a victim of, of state. State, state repression. We might think of this contradiction as leading to a condition that Ashil and Bembe refers to as impotence and mutual zombification, a condition that emerges when authoritarian rulers rely on their absolute capacity to command the bodies of the rules. The ruled may have no choice but to comply, but rulers lose their buy-in, their trust. Achieving legitimacy is difficult, resulting in an impotent situation where neither reform, pr progress, or opposition, or or full control is entirely possible. Um, so I wanted to flag Mebe's idea because I'll return to this idea to suggest ways in which the condition of civics teachers um, led to a kind of impotence where the state could not legitimate itself either through a pretense of democracy um, or through convincing people to buy into their authoritarian practices um, or through allowing dissent to actually take place. So this, this impotent stalemate is something that I think we see Ethiopia and other places fall into repeatedly. So where are teachers in all this? Um, to explore the multifaceted role of teachers as constituting an intimate fault line between repression and revolutionary change, I think it's important to understand and explore two things that I've detailed above. One, the discrepancy between state idea and state practice, and two, the complex effects of state violence. So one thing that, that Arat Shaga tells us is that state violence brings the state close to the skin and intimate in a particular kind of way. But teachers also make the state intimate. And we don't often think of teachers as state actors, but they are in many places, especially places like Ethiopia. Um, and teachers tend to bring the state in in the sense that they're often physically, emotionally, and psychologically close with their students. They're charged with nurturing young state subjects and socializing them into the ways of the nation. They act in the place of parents at times, sometimes forming a bridge between the family and the state. Teachers are responsible for intimately producing and reproducing the state, um, but this locates them in that gap between the discursive production of the state and encounters between the state and its people in everyday realm. They're all, they also engage in a daily basis with what Michael Hertzfeld calls cultural intimacy or a discursive interactive process in which the state is not glorified, but rather the less savory elements of national belonging are circulated, ascribed with meaning and made collective. So the state of emergency in Ethiopia was a complex time, a time in which a sense of fear and repression got close to the skin of state subjects, but which also kept open spaces for possibility and never fully abandoned the idea of democracy. One factor that made the idea of democracy possible was the, was the civic and ethical education curriculum and made democracy imaginable in Ethiopia. This curriculum was put in place by the same government that then in turn seemed to be unraveling those possibilities. So now I'll turn to talking about uh, a little bit of an overview of the Ethiopian civic and ethical education curriculum, and then I'll, I'll talk about my ethnographic data, which hopefully brings that more theoretical bit and um, the CEE curriculum together. So what I have here on the slide is are the overview of the main topics in the civic and ethical education curriculum. Um, these are topics that are repeated throughout high school, um, and, and they give slightly different examples and exercises, but basically these are the same topics that were set up in the curriculum. So um, first to note that, that Elsa, despite being a target of state repression, according to her own account, was not being particularly revolutionary or rebellious. She was actually teaching directly from the government's civic and ethical education curriculum at the time of her, her arrest and indeed really following the book exactly. Um, this curriculum might be thought of as a sort of instruction manual for how to be a good citizen who follows the Ethiopian constitution. By Elsa's own account, she didn't silence the student. She didn't support the student's challenging question. Instead, she tried to tactfully navigate a tricky and delicate situation, and she got arrested for it. So understanding a little bit more about the civic and ethical education curriculum might explain why she took this particular approach. Ethiopia's CEE curriculum is largely responsible for educating Ethiopians about liberal democratic constitutional governance post-1991. The EPRDF, which I mentioned before, took power um, sort of by default in 1991, but officially um, with the institution of democratic federalism in 1994, began a process of reframing the nation around the, the rights and autonomy of all ethnic groups and the rule of law. 
Um, the CEE curriculum is a blueprint for the EPRDF's initial vision of citizenship under the Constitution. It's importantly a required subject from elementary school through high school. It's also a very important subject in, in universities and people can study it in, in universities. Um, also notably, university students were involved, university instructors, professors were involved in writing the curriculum, um, training students in the curriculum and revising the curriculum. So there was a lot of investment in the curriculum throughout the whole broad swath of the education system. It's a mandatory subject on university exams, meaning that students have to not only take the course, but they have to actually master the material if they wish to go to university. So there's a lot of weight put behind this. The curriculum outlines a particular notion of personhood that's oriented around democratic values, constitutionalism, federalism, multiculturalism, and the rule of law. It educates students about human rights and democratic governance, and it promotes qualities of hard work, industriousness, peace building, and loyalty to the state. It places a great deal of emphasis on development and tolerance of diversity. The curriculum has been revised three times. Um, some argue that it, that it centers around three team, themes, constitutional democracy, which undercurds patriotism and government accountability, individual responsibility, which is linked with the idea of living in a multi-ethnic country, and participating in an interde interdependent world. So we might think about these as three different forms of citizenship, constitutional, multicultural, and global in different ways. Um, in the context of, of Ethiopia's civic and ethical education curriculum, democracy refers to a collective understanding of one's duties as a constitutional and multicultural citizen. So the curriculum in short teaches people to adapt to new forms of citizenship that the EPRDF was trying to put into place under the new constitution that introduced ethnic federalism, but also democratic reforms. Um, so this is kind of a far cry from when, when it rolled away from introducing democracy, but the curriculum stayed the same. At the time of my fieldwork, the civic and ethical education curriculum increasingly was cent centrally situated in debates about the plight of youth, economic and political marginalization, the nature of citizenship, and inclusive belonging for different groups, as well as the appropriate forms of civic protest, civic participation, such as protest. Um, and it ought to be noted that there was a lot of debate and criticism of the civics curriculum at that time, around 2016-17. There still is. And just to give you a sense of some of the, the lines of debate and critique, um, some people, as I'll get into in a minute, were critical of the civics curriculum because they perceived that it was simply government propaganda and there was too much difference between the curriculum and the reality, that the government was repressive, the curriculum promoted democracy and human rights. Um, another critique was that it was, it was propaganda of the EPRDF and evidence of this was that it took too critical a stance to earlier authoritarian leaders, um, namely people would cite that it depicted Haile, Emperor Haile Selassie as an authoritarian leader, it depicted um, Mengistu Haile Mariam, the communist leader, as an authoritarian leader, and, and people thought it was too critical on, of those leaders without being equally critical of the current, the current leadership. Other critiques were that it was promoting sort of an unruly generation of youth by promoting rights more than it was promoting obligations and duties. Um, some argued that it was too simple, that, that it needed to have a more complex curriculum um, and that earlier versions of the curriculum had been more complex, involved more reading, and the newer ones were kind of dumbed down in various different ways. Um, so this is the nature of these, these um, critiques. But in general, there was a sense that the curriculum had failed and that's why there was so much dissent in Ethiopia and so many youth uprisings at the time um, of this, that the state of emergency was called. Oops, sorry, I went backwards. All right, there's where we want to get. All right, so now shifting into some of my, my ethnographic data to get a sense of what some of the teachers were struggling with regard to the civics curriculum. Um, it's important to note that, that mo when most of the civic and ethical education cur curriculum teachers were trained, um, first there was a lot of investment in their training and they were actually quite well trained in their subject matter. Um, and they were also ex tremendously excited, at least initially, and dedicated to the teaching of the subject. They thought of themselves and of civic, civic and ethical education as um, not political as sort of apolitical, but they also thought of themselves as missionaries. So they said things like, we think of ourselves not, they think we're political missionaries, but we think we're citizenship missionaries. So there's a strong sense of mission in their work, but this was not political work. 
Um, one teacher even said repeatedly that their work and the curriculum should be regarded as secular. Um, and secular to him meant that they shouldn't be attached to a particular party or political group, but rather that they were sort of neutrally transcending partisan politics and teaching the concepts and ideas that would make democratic work, which was really interesting that that was thought of as a, a more technical process and not a, not a political, not a political process. At the same time, CE teachers knew they were commonly labeled as political teachers by teachers and other students, by other teachers and students. Most CE teachers were attracted because they genuinely liked and cared about the subject, um, but they kept saying things like, as you can see on the slide, on the quotations I have on my slide, other teachers perceive us as instruments of the government, were perceived as political missionaries, but were citizenship missionaries. Um, so this set of ideas kept coming up over and over and over again. But for teachers, their work was really about producing citizens who had knowledge and knew how to act as citizens of a country according to the Constitution. Um, this shows an interesting kind of anti-politics in the way teachers thought about their world, their, their work, to sort of borrow loosely from James Ferguson's ideas about sort of development as an anti-political, anti-politics machine. Teaching citizenship was thought of as a sort of technical project of sorts. If you know the curriculum, if you have a good curriculum, if you have a good teaching method, um, you can build democratic citizens in some ways. Um, not so much a, a, a process of, of teaching students to engage in political dissent. Um, if you knew how to teach and if you gave students the correct ethical and moral and behavior to be a citizen, um, you should ideally have um, a better outcome for your government. But the anti-political technical work of citizen building became political because the government itself turned against its own state ideas that they had put into place. At the same time, as the quotes on the screen show, teachers were thought of as doing political work. Um, so they were already kind of caught between a rock and a hard place where everyone thought they were political. They thought they were disseminating government propaganda um, and being set up intentionally to do that. Um, but teachers themselves said, no, we're just trying to sort of engage in this in this more technical process of creating good, good democracy. One of the key things that I wanted to flag is that, that one teacher, actually several teachers explained that things were different before 2005. Um, 2005, 1997 in the Ethiopian calendar was a year when um, up until that point, people had a lot of faith in democracy and that the country was moving in a democratic direction. Um, parliamentary elections that year, there was a great dispute about who had won the parliamentary elections leading to mass street protests and a, a massive government clampdown at that point. Um, which the the move the march towards authoritarianism and government repression never came back after that point. So between 2005 and um, 2014, and the protests that led up to um, the state of emergency, um, there there wasn't a lot of opportunity for wide for widespread protests. So that was sort of seen as civic education was good before that particular moment. And then after that particular moment, um, it didn't work anymore. Other comments suggested that um, students laughed at the curriculum because they could see, observe corruption and observe that the things that they were learning about weren't true. Um, they said that initially the curriculum was good. It had credibility, but then they it lost its credibility in the face of things going a different direction. So it's striking that teachers were trained and charged with the idea of promoting the idea of the state that was pervaded by the curriculum, an idea oriented around citizenship and democracy, um, but that their work was equated as propaganda that was trying to hide the realities of, of what the state had actually become. Um, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting dilemma, despite the fact that teachers themselves really did see themselves as promoting these, these values um, in the face of a place where that was no longer possible to do that. A couple of uh, quick examples to, to show sort of how this played out. On, on the next two slides, I have quotations from the civics curriculum on one side of the slide and quotations from civics curriculum, civics teachers talking about how the reality and what the curriculum said were different um, in order to get a sense of what's going on here. So the curriculum in, in unit one of the grade 11 curriculum, and it plays out in a lot of different units of the curriculum, there's a lot of emphasis on, on transparency. Um, students are given are quoted from the constitution about transparency. There's a lot of explanation of what transparency is. They're even given um, an, an assignment, a, a group work assignment where they're supposed to figure out how to tell how transparent their own school is. So clearly the curriculum itself is trying to encourage students to be democratic citizens who know how to demand government transparency. And then the teacher comments that we teach them about accountability, 
and transparency. Um, but we, then they see leaders abusing their power and they basically are saying they know that if they challenge someone's in power, they're going to be hunted down and go to prison and, and it's going to lead to problems for them. So the, the reality and what students actually see in practice is really nowhere close to each other. Um, similarly, and importantly for, for our subject matter, um, the same thing plays out around the idea of, of, street, of street protests. Um, so again, in one of the units from the grade 11 um, curriculum, um, the idea of, of whether students should protest or not was hotly debated. This is the debate that got, that got Elsa arrested. Um, the curriculum notes that students have the right to protest and goes through a fairly extensive case study about how a group of students stage a demonstration um, in Addis Ababa against female genital mutilation. They get permission for it, they attract lots of people and they get the attention of their government officials and change is made. And yay, it's a it's a good success story. Um, however, the reality is that that not only can students not um, stage protests, but if, if teachers attempt to discuss with students um, the the correct conditions and the correct ways to to um, stage a protest. Um, then students like Elsa, teachers like Elsa can be arrested. Um, so teachers are very, very aware of the fact that, that despite the fact that students have the constitutional right to protest, um, they everyone knows that if you oppose the government, if you criticize them seriously, um, that there will be problems and that it will not go well for you. So this the same kind of distinction between what the text not only says, but engages students in activities, interactive groups, sessions to try to learn how to do like state protests and hold institutions accountable um, is completely belied by what their actual experience in, in life is. Um, so civic and ethical education teachers, despite the fact that they, they believed in what the curriculum was saying in both the method in a lot of cases, as well as in the content of it, um, they were very wary of, of realizing, of, of politically mobilizing their teachers. And yet, and yet they had this text that they had to teach. So they were, they were stuck in a few different ways between the text, between the reality, and as we'll see in a minute, um, between what the students were actually demanding and asking for. So uh, teachers' technocratic and anti-political stance also extended towards their stance, toward their students in, in an interesting way. So another paradox that we see in teachers in the teaching of civics is that all they believe, although they believe deeply in teaching students about their democratic, constitutional, and human rights, they worried that students were too fixated on their rights and not considering their responsibilities enough. Um, so when I when I asked them about this, this was something I heard from from teachers a lot, but also from people in Ethiopia more more generally. The young generation is more concerned about their rights, not their responsibilities. So when I asked teachers what this meant to be concerned about their responsibilities, they would say things like they should wear their uniforms, they should cover their exercise books, they should take care of the schools, they should follow the school rules. Um, so I found this very curious that. Um, that duties were all about taking care of your school and rights were potentially sort of something um, something bigger, something about students sort of feeling the need to, to um, march in the streets and, and potentially, potentially protest. Um, so there's a sort of depoliticizing in all of this also, but also a sense that teachers are thinking about if students learn how to take care of their school, if they learn discipline at the school level, they will be more disciplined when they grow up and go off into the world and take on bigger political roles. There was a very strong sense that it was a staged approach, approach where students now needed to work hard and learn and learn as much as they could, and they somehow didn't have the maturity to be able to take on larger political roles now. So I think this concern about um, students being overly political was partly born from some cultural um, elements that suggest that young people should be respectful and deferent to old people, partly born by some sort of more generalized concerns about restive youth marching in the street, which in many countries have been talked about as potentially um, problematic and, and unsettled. Um, but I think it also kind of gets back to some, in some way, to this idea for normalcy. Again, recalling the idea of the maddening state, right? That um, let's just get back to normal. Let's sort of figure out how to coexist with the government, whatever it will be, um, and not push back, not be, not be restive. Let's get students acting like students um, instead of instead of pushing back against this. Um, I think the anti-political ma machinery going on here with, with teachers' attitudes towards students, I think also gets gets back at, 
at Mbembe's idea of impotence, where um, teachers, when they're as they're stuck between the sort of rock and a hard place, um, that they're also trying to socialize their students into just sort of just do your thing, just be a good student, um, don't make waves. It's not going to do you any any good in some ways. Um, so it's not the politically empowering thing that the curriculum has the potential to be. Instead, it becomes the sort of politically disempowering or apolitical thing. So when we when we view it in this light, arrests, Elsa's arrests start to make a little, make a little bit more sense um, by even addressing or engaging in a discussion with students about protest. She's stepping away from her technocratic role, right? So if she's expected to just kind of tell students be a good student, study. As soon as she's even answered their questions, she's already being too political in some ways, um, which may be one of the reasons why she was particularly vulnerable to um, to being arrested because she she didn't depoliticize completely in that moment. She instead engaged in some kind of political question, even if it was to say, here's why this is happening. So a, a final interesting element that, that came out in conversations with civics teacher was the idea that the students don't have fear, but the teachers are afraid. Um, so I've already pointed out that teachers are an extremely difficult position. Um, they're caught between the ideals of the curriculum that they believe in, the repression of the state, which they don't like, but they sort of make their peace with in some ways, um, a sense that the state was surveilling them, which made them feel like they had to walk, tread very, very carefully. Um, and then the final thing that was challenging them was students challenging them themselves, because students were not taking on this, this apolitical role in the same way. So teachers had a sense of duty to ideals, um, and a sense that they didn't really want to be doing political work because they were citizenship missionaries, not political missionaries. Um, but students were constantly pushing, pushing back on them. And it's an interesting question to think about why were students afraid um, and teachers were not afraid. And I want to bring back in here Solo Ismail's idea about pedagogical violence. Um, and in a minute, I'll suggest that there, there was something of a, a generational effect going on here where teachers had had more historical and lived memory of earlier forms of political violence um, that made them more wary of engaging than, than students might have been in, in, some, in some ways. Um, so teachers remembered, as is suggested in the first quotation I have here, that um, other teachers had faced consequences because they um, took the curriculum too far, politicized it too much, or pushed back against the pushed back against the government. Um, so, uh, for example, some, one teacher said, as as I note here, that this teacher raised this consciousness of the students and they took his job away. Other teachers had pay docked. Other teachers were coerced into joining the party. Um, and then, of course, we have an example of at least one teacher being arrested, and and I believe other teachers at this time were arrested as as well. Um, the second quotation um, gets at the idea that that teachers see students' challenges as as risky. So when students ask teachers um, to answer questions and to answer this question about like why is this not happening in reality, um, teachers feel challenged by that. Teachers feel like they're potentially um, afraid of, afraid of that. Um, so I think that's that's an important thing thing to think about. Um, another quote that I didn't put up here um, also makes a really a really interesting point that that students see what's going on, they see the reality, they want to talk about it, and then students in turn turn around and speak freely. Um, but that teachers won't speak freely because they, and one teacher even said, teachers have been in prison during the previous regimes. So teachers are, are calling on, on earlier historical memory, the fact that um, state violence is still very close to the skin for them, um, the nervous system again is sort of infused within them um, and they're very worried at this moment when they see the state behaving in this way they're very worried in this moment of, um, of of taking too much taking too much of a risk so I suggest that there's a generational effect on students lack of fear and teachers fear um, the pedagogies of state violence and repression clearly affected students and teachers in very different ways uh, making teachers cautious and students in some ways bold um, and it's it has to do with with memory as well as the fact that teachers felt like they were they were in danger. Although students were in danger from this as well, but teachers were very much affected by um, a sort of nervous condition in some ways. And the final quotation I have up here is a little bit different, and I think a little bit more complex. Um, this particular teacher began by talking about students' fear. Students don't have a fear of teaching openly, um, but also talked about the way the teacher and the government feared each other. Um, so this teacher says, because of this, the government fears the teachers and the teachers fear the government. So um, teachers can challenge the government. So there's a sense that teachers are not, although they're saying we're doing 
we're citizenship missionaries and we're not political, there's also a sense that they have knowledge and they ha they know things that can be a challenge um, and a sense that the government's fearful of them. So I think it's it's useful to, to bring Mbembe's idea of impotence back in here, to think about how the teachers are afraid of the government, government is afraid of the teachers, and as a result, um, neither one is particularly doing anything to sort of move, move forward. The government's not able to do as good a job at repressing if that's what it wants to do here. Um, Teachers are not then doing as good a job at sort of moving into democratic citizenship and educating in those ways because everyone's hamstrung by their fear of of the other. So in, in conclusion, um, this idea of I, I wanted to toss out a couple of ideas getting us back to the idea of repression or revolution and can we get out of this cycle of impotence into something that looks transformative. Um, so the idea of teachers not judging and just teaching what is written in some ways is kind of the height of impotence, as was suggested in the last quotation. Um, fearful of teaching curriculum and the interactive way it was written to be taught, teachers were unable to even produce what the text that they were given, um, the curriculum that they were trained in, the curriculum that the government had designed for them to teach in order to support what the government initially said was its state building project. So teachers are so impotent that they can't even teach the state building project that they're trained and charged with teaching that the government has invested in. So this left teachers uncertain about how to do their jobs safely and the government without a way to legitimate, disseminate or socialize students into the state building project that they're promoting. Um, there are authoritarian regimes that do figure out ways to socialize state subjects into being docile subjects of an authoritarian regime. Um, Ethiopia hasn't particularly done that. So they're sort of caught in this kind of in-between way where they have this text that socializes students into being democratic citizens, and then that's not the way the state's behaving. So there's this disjuncture there. But teachers are also left with a sense of mission. They're aware of this paradox. They're aware of the, the impotence of this condition of them, of, uh, that they're in with the government. Um, and at least some of them still felt like they had a responsibility to push beyond it by not keeping silent. So I think the other quotation I have up there is also important, which is you have to keep struggling, you have to keep talking. Um, and I don't think this teacher here is talking about sort of sending students out to, to engage in street protests or leading the way, um, but instead is saying, let's just keep teaching our curriculum, let's keep, let's keep going with what we're supposed to be doing. So I feel like I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't conclude this talk without sharing some of um, Elsa's last words in the, the interview that I did with her. Um, despite her arrest, she said that she remained strong. And even in the face of what had happened to her, she was determined to stay strong and offered a critique of what would have what should have happened, which is both mundane, I think, and revolutionary. I think it also provides an interesting and clear path out of some of the impotence that probably came directly from her knowledge of civics. Um, so here I asked her sort of, she was mentioning gaps that exist in, in governance. And we might think of that as the gap between the state idea and state and practice. And she was very specific about it. She didn't say, oh, get rid of the government. We need to um, completely just shift everything around. What she said is that this was unnecessary interference and had a very pragmatic solution. She said, in my situation, this could have been addressed by the school. This was not the jurisdiction of the police. So effectively, she's saying, let's get the police out of the school. If I'm a bad teacher, if I do something I'm not supposed to do, my school director needs to handle that for me. Um, she said, if there's a complaint from a student, that's the purview of the school. So she's asking for something much more humble and modest in some way. She's act asking for sort of clear delineations for different state actors to do their jobs differently. Um, and she concludes saying, but, but I'm strong now. I'm even stronger than before. I'm a civics teacher and it's my responsibility to talk about democracy. But when we talk about the reality, it's horrible. Um, so in conclusion, she just to leave your, her with your words, um, she's basically saying it's a good curriculum. Let me just continue to do my job and move on. All right, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much for that excellent talk, uh, Jennifer. Um, so, um, uh, take question and answer uh, now. Um, if you have questions, and you might type your question into the um, conversation box, and then I might ask if you don't want to ask directly. But if you want to, just raise your digital hand, and then I can um, call on you to ask your question. So, um, if I can start, uh, Jennifer, uh, I am. Um, it's quite fascinating the the confluence between the idea of the state and and state effect in in the Ethiopian context. So I was wondering what uh, agents of the state, how the agents of the state defended this wide gulf between the 
critical elements of uh, civic education and, and state practices. Do they attempt to defend this or they don't even bother to articulate any kind of defense of this gulf between state practice and you know, uh, civic, what the, the, the core elements of civic education? You know, it's a, that's a that's a really really interesting question. So in the moment when I was doing this research, no, um, they were they were not defending it. They were either remaining completely silent about it, and and there were civics teachers that I interviewed who just were were very very sort of quiet about sort of just very factual. Here's what I teach. Here's what I do, and they wouldn't comment. Um, and then there were others that were more willing to be open, as the ones that I quoted were. Um, but nobody tried to defend the gap and to say um, this is okay. It, it would be interesting to know, um, and this would require a different kind of research. Um, if in an earlier or different moment in history, um, say around 2005 or 2004. Um, if at that point civics teachers were still trying to defend the defend the gap, but by 2016 when I was there, I don't think anyone was trying to say here's how we can explain. It. Now, having said that, I think when teachers say things like um, students can protest, but there needs to be procedures for it, I think that that's a way that you could defend that gap. You could sort of take a technocratic response and say, we need them to do this the right way. We need them to not just sort of go out and, and be angry. We need them to think in a more measured way. We need them to learn first. Um, but I think the gap had become so wide that teachers didn't feel like there was that, that it, was, it was defensible anyway. Um, the teacher who was probably doing her best, I mean, she was probably trying in some ways to defend that gap and say, um, look, these protesters are, are doing it the wrong way. They didn't get permission. They didn't go through proper procedures. Um, they're being violent. So she was trying to, to defend that gap, but then she got arrested. So I think that there was a, I think there was a sense, um, I think there was a sense that teachers could defend the gap by just going back to the um, curriculum. But, but I think by this point, most of the teachers were not um, buying into the, they weren't buying into the, um, to what the government was doing, into the practice for the most part. It was, it was a moment of too much extreme. Um, now, later on, it, it, it would be, going back and looking at that question would be a really interesting thing to do now um, when they're in the process of revising the civics curriculum again, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, um, or to go back and, and if people would talk about it to see if you could do some historical research about earlier time periods about what it would look like. Um, there's very, very little research on the civics curriculum, um, so it's hard to sort of draw on a body of literature that sort of says, here's how it was at other times. Okay, perhaps that would also include, you know, uh, a new vista would be examining also uh, the public discourse, particularly in the media, about this, because yeah. I mean, civic education has often been considered by authoritarian regimes in Africa as, you know, a threat to the social order. Um, I remember in Nigeria at a point the talk was about teachers teaching what they were not paid to teach. Mm -hmm. Now, in this context, teachers are actually paid to teach these things, but then students are not expected to practice what they are being taught which is you know, very interesting in terms of how, you know, the, what's the structure of public discourse of this dissonance between what people are supposed to know and what they're supposed to do about that knowledge. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah and I think that that's, that's in some ways in authoritarian states, that's the more common is that um, teachers get in trouble for teaching things that are too much of a stretch or outside of the curriculum. Um, but this was actually, in this case, they, they were teaching the curriculum and the curriculum itself was no longer acceptable, which made it made for a really interesting, interesting moment of kind of, I don't know, crisis or contradiction for the government. Yes, thank you. Yeah, Jason. Thanks. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, Jen, it's very nice to see you. Um, nice to from see you too. The sea. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm really 